No my hi my and welcome to the Seed Pod Season 3, a podcast where we explore the wonders of nature and our connections to the earth. Each episode, we invite guests to share their stories of nature connection and to nerd out with us about everything from art and conservation advocacy to the fascinating world of fungi. I'm your host and fellow nature enthusiast, Sean Crowley, and I'm excited to dive deep into the natural world with all of you. So sit back, relax, and let's get lost in the beauty of nature. Kia ora koutou. welcome back to the Seed Pod. This is episode 17 and I'm here with Charlie. Welcome, Charlie. Kia ora. my name is Charlie Thomas. I am an artist, conservationist, public speaker and all-round bird nerd, I guess. Yeah, very excited to be here. Amazing, thanks so much for joining me. Now, for each podcast episode, I'd love to start with a nature connection story. Would you like to share a story with us? Yeah, absolutely. Now, all of my earliest childhood memories go back to, they're basically all nature connection stories, but I thought I would go with one a little bit more recent, but was pretty um, pretty exciting. I guess you could call it exciting. I was at my at one of my previous jobs, an amazing job where I worked for a charity called Sea Cleaners, and we were off uh, the island Rangitoto doing a cleanup, and I noticed there was a, a, a pied cormorant, a pied shag flying past with a huge big ball of nylon hanging off the back of it. And often I find birds wrapped up in nylon and plastic all the time. And it's usually too late. You know, they're already dead on the beach and that kind of thing. But this bird was still alive. So I thought, right, I'm going to do what I can to try and catch it. And as it flew past, it landed in the water. And I thought, right, I can do this. I've got this. Launch the kayaks straight in the water with the paddles, going for it, towel, gloves, glasses, all ready to go. And it took 15 minutes of chasing this poor bird around, sticking its head up every 30 seconds. If you know anything about shags, you know they're really sneaky when it comes to moving around under the water. And after 15 minutes, I finally was able to uh, grab this poor bird out of the water, rescue it, take it back to the boat on the kayak. Um, and I was really lucky to be able to, once I had a, had put on the appropriate uh, safety gear, which is gloves and a towel and glasses, if you're ever going to handle birds, I was able to cut off all of the nylon and release the bird and it swam away and flew away happily back to the island. So that was a really nice sort of happy story that, you know, stuff like experiences like that always make me feel more connected to birds and connected to nature when you're able to do a good thing like that and save a life and I now take that uh that lure and all that fishing line with me to school talks to tell that same story and hopefully help people uh be better fisher people and take all their rubbish home with them absolutely incredible and I'm so glad that you were there at the right time as you say before it was too late So you talked a little bit about science communication and going into schools. Another way that you use science communication and the work that you do is through your art. And one of your first art pieces that I saw was of a bird filled with rubbish, which was an incredibly impactful image to have portrayed. And it was based on a photo, I believe. So would you like to talk about your art and the process behind that as well? Yeah, so that image, uh, I painted that picture from an image from uh, Cure Atoll, where I spent nine months doing wild uh, habitat and wildlife restoration work. 
So Atoll has a lot of albatross on it. And albatross are a species that are affected hugely by plastic uh, because of where they, North Pacific albatross, where they like to forage for food. And so most of the albatross and seabirds in the North Pacific and on Atoll are full of plastic. So unfortunately, when you're walking around and you're coming across carcasses of adults and of young birds, most of them are absolutely full of plastic. Now, when I, when I say full, I mean at least a liter of plastic debris, whether that's mm. toothbrushes or light or any of that kind of thing so they're really hard images to look at it's really hard to look at that and process it because nobody wants to look at dead birds but also it's really sad and it's really confronting so being able to paint those images and you know not make them more beautiful but make them make them into a way that they're easier to digest in a way that you can look at it for longer and think about the story and about the impact it makes it easier to process for people which is I find really helpful and other people find really helpful because you get really sort of you know you get a bit numb to the whole plastic thing you know bad news every day on Facebook and in the news itself so I found that my art has been a really special way to be able to tell those stories and convey those messages in a less confronting way than the images themselves you know I do mostly watercolor portraits of our native birds uh, and other Tonga species um, from New Zealand and also abroad depending on you know what I've been studying or I'm interested in at the moment but it's mostly New Zealand native birds and when people buy my pictures or they look at them online and they bring them home and they put them up on their wall uh, you start to form a little bit of a, of a connection and a bond with that species and I feel like you're way more likely to want to do something about protecting them and taking care of them if you're looking at a picture of it every day you know you may have a piwaka waka on your wall and you've never actually potentially seen one or recognized them before and suddenly outside your window you start to see them and you start thinking oh that's cool these are species that are in my backyard you know maybe there's something that I can be doing to make sure that they've got you know safer or better habitat so I'm really grateful that my art has been able to connect people to wildlife more, as well as tell the really hard stories that sometimes it's, you know, people tune out of when they're really confronting like that. So it's been a really fun journey, sort of combining my both my hobbies for art and conservation. Yeah, amazing. And some of your recent works as well, especially around Curie Atoll, have some written pieces behind them as well. Would you like to talk a little bit more about the storytelling aspect of that? Yeah, so alongside the art, um, I have written blogs and different pieces of varying lengths uh, about less scientific stuff, but more more along the lines of really how emotionally I was feeling at the time when I'm having these experiences. Uh, when I was on Kure Atoll was 2020, so it was when everybody back in New Zealand was in lockdown. And Kure Atoll is one of the most remote islands in the world. It is uh, 2,000 miles northwest of Oahu, basically halfway between the main Hawaiian Islands and Japan. And it takes seven days on a ship to get there. And it was just me and three other people for the whole nine months and 50,000 albatross. So I had a lot of time for painting and taking photos and writing. And 
while everybody in New Zealand was in their own kind of lockdown, isolation kind of, you know, life and way, I was in a very different, but also isolated lockdown situation. So as I'm writing these stories, uh, I'm trying to think of ways that people back home who are stuck inside, maybe can't go out, see their, see their whanau or their friends, um, might be able to enjoy it and take some some comfort or some joy from my writing. So it was a really good way for me as well to process everything that I was going through because I was homesick, you know, I'd just turned 18, I was really young and literally on a rock in the middle of the Pacific while the world is going through a global pandemic. So being able to connect with these uh, these different um, species, particularly the albatross on the island, the laysan and black-footed and uh, short-tailed, we had a couple of short-tailed albatross as well. Uh, was a really you know special way to to process my emotions and being able to sit on the beach and you know have these amazing experiences with birds like I would just sit there like there's one I wrote uh, called the still waltz which was about when I was doing some of the restoration work I was standing next to one of the dunes one day looking up as the the wind came straight in across the exposed reef and it was the way that the wind was coming in meant that the birds were hovering like they weren't they weren't going forwards or backwards or anything. They were all hovering still in space, like the birds in the um, Natural History Gallery at Auckland Museum is what it reminded me of. And I just love to, to just stand there and look up at all these birds, just perfectly posed all the way down the length of the island. It was so special. So being able to then incorporate that into my art and make it visual as well. Some of my more hard hitting um and emotional stories like when I came across a very young small red-footed booby chick that had been blown out of its nest due to a hurricane that went past and it's in a situ we're in a situation where if nature's caused the issue and there's nothing that we can do about it then we don't do anything so I had this really hard and emotional moment where I'm faced with the most beautiful fluffy downy white little bird I've ever seen in my life and I know it's going to die, but there's nothing I can do about it. So I write about that and illustrated that as well. So it's really helped, you know, dealing with my emotions and uh, once again, connecting people um, on a really, rather than a scientific, a more personal sort of scale. Yeah. That's incredibly moving. And what a hard ethical and moral dilemma that you would have been going through in that moment, knowing that this beautiful species that you've spent so much time around and, and all of these amazing birds around you, the beautiful species that you were able to experience and knowing that it's just life and the natural cycle of things, it's that's really hard. Yeah, I learned a lot about about death and about grieving and about taking a step back and just letting everything happen because on a place like Cure where there's four people and nothing but nature you basically exist with absolutely zero footprint so everything that we did had to have a positive impact you know if there's something walking down the path towards you you have to step to the side and let it walk past you you, you can't interact with anything and you, you you just can't interfere everything happens and it just will just continue to happen and I learned so much from that from just yeah taking a step back and just realizing that it's all just a part of unless obviously it's a plastic issue or it's something that humans of course we would help but if it was just nature taking its course and you just had to let it be and that was really hard for me as someone who is the dedicated 
bird rescuer or bug rescuer from the classrooms and that kind of thing. Um, but I definitely learned a lot from that. Definitely. Now, would you like to share a little bit more about the work that you were doing on Curatol? I was really lucky to be selected as a one of a team of four for Cura Atoll's summer season in 2020. So I spent from beginning of March until the end of October as yeah one of four biologists working to restore the island. So we were mainly doing invasive weed species removal. So we were removing a type of sunflower called golden crown beard or Verbicina enceloides. And now every time I see a sunflower, even back in New Zealand, I get a little bit stressed because that type of leaf and flower is just ingrained into my brain now. Like you talk to anybody else who's worked in weed control and they will be having nightmares about the weeds that they're eradicating. Mm -hmm. uh, but Curie was a, is a special case because Curie is, two, is about 86 he hectares. So uh, 500 meters wide and two kilometers long. And Verbicina is a really difficult plant because it has a five-week life cycle. So in five weeks, it can go from a seed or a tiny little, tiny little plant to a plant with a flower that's dropping seeds. Those seeds can last for seven years uh, as, as a seed bank. So every season that a flower dropped seeds, it would add seven years to the eventual long-term program. So we had to cover the entire island every five weeks to make sure that we weren't missing any of these flowers and that they weren't growing to a point where they could drop seeds. And you'd think that would be really easy and straightforward if the plants just grew how plants normally do. But no, these plants are really sneaky and mean and they'll grow maybe an inch up and then they'll just decide to turn sideways and they'll grow like parallel with the ground for three meters and drop seeds and you won't see anything for weeks, if not months. So we had to do a lot of fine tuning and learning about the land and learning about the plant and what it can do and also about the wildlife there because like I mentioned before there's a lot of albatross on Cure but there's also a lot of other amazing seabirds like bone and petrels and witch-tailed shearwaters which like to build enormous underground mansions uh, like most seabird islands, you sort of can't walk around without risking putting your foot through a burrow. And that's that's hard enough when the ground is made out of soil. That is made immensely more difficult when the ground is made out of sand. So yes. everywhere that we step is basically a, a landmine, except there won't be an explosion. There's potentially a, a thigh deep hole underneath you that you can't see or a small bird that you have to dig out and rescue so looking for these plants was really difficult and then actually navigating the land itself was even more difficult on top of that I learned so 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 much uh, about myself but also about how to do you know really intensive weed eradication work about these different seabird species uh, I learned so much about how to do shorebird surveys and that kind of thing we did heaps of marine debris removal of course because as the only people on this island we had to do everything that you would that you would need to do to run a small remote island field camp so uh i became a cook i became I, I i learned how to chop down trees and do all sorts of cool stuff which i'd never done before of course i cooked before but every time we cooked a meal it was for 12 so that we could have dinner and then lunch the next day and then dinner the next day which was pretty great um 
but yeah we did all the marine debris removal from the outside of the beaches because of course like i mentioned before cure is basically right smack bang in the middle of the north pacific gaia or on the edge of it at least so there's a lot of rubbish washing up on the beach like it's just so 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 much rubbish so when it was appropriate for us to spend a day doing that we would walk the beaches um removing all of the marine debris that was about to pose an immediate threat to wildlife like ropes or stuff with uh hooks or holes or hoops and loops that the Hawaiian monk seals, which is uh, a critically endangered species, is at risk of getting stuck in, and same with the albatross. So yeah, we were kept busy for every single second of every single day. And when we weren't busy, it was because we were sitting around our laptop in the evening deciding what movie or what TV show to watch as we bonded and got to know each other, which was also amazing. They were the most amazing field team ever. I'm so grateful to have been stuck on that island with them out of all the people in the world. Cure was just incredibly life-changing. Um, I think I should probably mention the fact that we didn't have Wi-Fi or cell service or running water or proper electricity we just had solar power and yeah once we got there we were stuck so uh, we even got stuck for a couple of months longer than we thought we were going to be due to the ship not being able to come out uh for some COVID stuff that happened back on the mainland uh but yeah it was incredible and I want to go back so bad if somebody said to me I've got one one ticket to Cure would you like it I'd say yes and I'd go back in an absolute heartbeat I miss it so much that is absolutely incredible and it just shows how isolated you were so I'm assuming that you had to bring everything in for the time that you were there and I was going to ask how do you deal with the waste that you're collecting like all of the marine debris that you're talking about I'm assuming you have to take all of that off as well so we're like it's a long time that you're on there what's the storage facilities like and how do you deal with that yeah so we have uh so Cure had a Coast Guard base on it for a little bit and an old runway. So flights used to land on Cure, but haven't for a long time. And we're in the process of digging up the runway and replanting it, which is really great. So there's our kitchen and sort of what we called the main house, which was, yeah, the kitchen, our food storage and uh, one of the bedrooms is the sort of the last couple of rooms cut off and salvaged from the original Coast Guard building. And then my the, the bunk room, so my bedroom and Maddie B's bedroom uh, was built by uh, by the team about 10 or 15 years ago, I think. So yes, we obviously were really conscious of the waste that we're producing. We were able to uh, compost food scraps, which was really good, but biosecurity is so high that anything with seeds could turn into an invasive species like that. So we weren't allowed to take stuff that had seeds, basically, that could germinate. All of the food that we took was uh, dried or frozen or long life, so lots of canned stuff, and we basically had no fresh food. So our solar panels were able to run a few freezers, so we had a lot of frozen meat and frozen vegetables and that kind of thing. But that only lasts so long. So I think by about month, uh, excuse me, by about m month eight, broccoli became 
like the the highest value item we were just so like when we're getting to the bottom of the broccoli and the bottom of the frozen peas things were getting sad like it was more exciting than the ice cream to have those uh frozen vegetables because then once you finish the frozen peas you move on to the tinned ones which are not so bad i learned how to make lasagna from scratch with just entirely tinned ingredients which i think is quite impressive but yeah we had to take basically a year's worth of food with us which was some hefty uh shopping in Honolulu before we headed out but also all of my all of our clothes all of our any gear that was going with us and going to be used on the island had to be bought brand new and frozen for 48 hours so that there is no risk of any kind of contaminant or bug or anything being on them so I had to buy a whole new wardrobe, which was crazy for someone who doesn't buy any new clothes and only buys secondhand stuff that felt really weird. All my books and all my paper and art supplies were all, we just froze everything to just be on the safe side. And yeah, when we did create waste, we obviously crushed all of our tins and cans down. We deconstructed all of our, uh, all of the cartons that we had for our different types of milks and packed it all into buckets and washed everything, packed it all into buckets and it got picked up on the, with the ship and we took it home with us and it all got recycled back in Honolulu, which is good that we were able to do that uh, but that's another thing of how we got all our stuff there obviously you can't take a fabric bag with a zip onto an island with biosecurity measures like that so back in Honolulu every single one of my items got packed into buckets so my I live my life out of nine five gallon plastic buckets wow. stacked in my room for, for nine months which was which was pretty different and of course all of our food all of our belongings everything it gets packed into into buckets and stuff that can be sealed so we needed to take a couple of big rubbish bins over with us so that's how we took our potato chips so we literally had the most enormous gray uh, rubbish bin that was just packed to the brim with potato chips it was the most exciting day of the week or the month or whatever when we got to go into the chippy bin it was fantastic wow. Uh, and when it comes to the marine debris, so that's obviously uh, a whole new, another story because there's a lot of marine debris on the island. And I'm someone that's, you know, I just come from a job where you pick up every little bit of plastic that you see and you can find. And that's not the case on Cure, simply because we don't have the facilities or the money to be able to store and bring that back to the mainland. So there's a lot of bottle caps and stuff like that that would wash up and, and you know, those kinds of things where in the ocean, yes, potentially something's going to eat it and consume it and have issues like that. But on the shore, we simply do not have the space. So we had enormous big, uh, like the big white sacks that you have for, for rubbish, for like for garden rubbish. We had a whole lot of those. So when we got ghost nets wash up, which are the huge conglomerate nets that weigh literal tons, mm -hmm. uh, those are what the priority were because we even had, while we were out there, we had a juvenile female a Hawaiian monk seal get entangled in one of those conglomerates that was on the reef. So luckily we were able to respond and get her um, cut out and she was safe and happy and fine. And then we got the the net off the reef, which was good too. Uh, but those are the priority for, for marine debris removal is that stuff that's going to be an immediate sort of major hazard. And that all got collected into sacks and pulled up to the high tide line so it was safe away from everything. And then the the Papahanaumokuakea Marine Debris uh, Removal Trust 
comes up and goes to all of the different islands in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands in the uh, in the archipelago, which is called Papahanamu Kokea, the marine reserve. And they go to each of the islands and they pick up as much of that marine debris, collect as many of those sacks possible, and then take it all back to to the mainland where it gets processed. And I believe uh, some of it gets recycled into other things, which is fantastic too. Wow, what a rigorous process. It's next level in everything. Like you're next level isolated, next level biosecurity, like freezing everything. I'm glad that you prioritize your art supplies as being part of your nine buckets worth of uh, gear. And then in terms of the getting rid of the waste, that's next level as well. So thank you so much for sharing those stories. I have heard a little bit about these monk seals and the reason I've heard about them is the weirdest reason, and it's because they get eels stuck up their nose. Do you yep. know about this? I've I've seen it. I've seen all the memes, and they look ridiculous. And that's all that I can say is that I've <laughs> okay. seen the memes, and it's hilarious. I think I did at some point read a bit more about it because I was so familiar. After I'd because I saw the memes, and then I went to Curia, and I was like, it's those seals. <laughs> <laughs> but I I don't and I I don't think I've learned anything else other than other than that yeah (laughs) they're stupid (laughs) so funny oh my gosh tell us about your favorite manu or bird because there is one in particular or probably one group of birds that you love yes can you guess that it's the albatross, the tortoise? Wow. <laughs> wow, who would have thought? <laughs> I I fell in love with tortoise back in I think it was twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. I was really lucky to join uh, Young Birders New Zealand, which was the most fantastic life decision I've ever made, and joined the most amazing group of fellow bird nerds and we went on the greatest trip around Southland and to Rakiura to Stewart Island and I went on my first pelagic. Now I was a very new fresh birder at this point and I went with my little digital camera and my book and that was it. No binoculars, no big long lens, no nothing. So I was there just having the time of my life taking pictures of the birders, taking pictures of birds, which I thought was pretty hilarious and the the side of birding that you don't often see Uh, but on that pelagic I saw my very first albatross and I was just absolutely gobsmacked I was just entranced immediately I've grown up working with seabirds uh, from about age 14 I've been doing uh, petrol surveying and banding out at Tafranui and I've worked with Kororoa for a very long time as well Uh, But these albatross were like something I've never, ever seen before. And I counted and there were 101 of them off the back of our boat, a mixture of bullers and white capped and salvins and uh, uh, royal albatross. And I was just an absolute heaven standing there with my jaw on the ground, looking at these incredible birds. And I was hooked from that point onwards. All I wanted to do was learn about albatross uh see see more of them um do whatever I could I started painting and drawing them I was just head over heels and I and I probably can't even put my finger on what it is I mean when I was on Curie obviously there's a lot of albatross there and they're like puppies and you and like I said before you're not allowed to have any interactions or disturb the wildlife so 
when these birds are walking up to you because they don't know anything about people. All they know is that these strange bipedal things turn up every, a couple times a year and walk around for a bit and then leave again. And so they've got no negative interactions with us. So they just walk right up to you and they'll try to pull the buttons off your pants, off your shirt. They'll try to take your hat off. They'll try sitting in your lap. They will, when you take your boots off after work, the chicks will walk up to you and start to pull your shoelaces out. There is just nothing you can do to avoid these amazing birds. And every now and then when I was feeling really naughty, I would, I would sneak a little look. You can't even look in their eyes really, because you don't really know what you're telling a bird like that. If you're going to sit there and stare right into their eyes, but I'd steal a little glance at them or through my camera, I'd have a look, um, I have a look at them face on and there is just so much expression and so much emotion in the way that they're looking at you so curiously, trying desperately hard to figure out what you are and what you're doing. And then if they eventually get bored, they might wander away. Or when I realize they have to get back to work, I'll get up and carry on. And they just they just follow. I highly recommend everybody Googles a video of albatrosses walking around, particularly laysan or black-footed albatrosses. And they just have, you can see when they're when they're getting ready to to take a step forward because they they rear their necks up and they get ready for a waddle and they waddle along with their bobbing their head left to right. Oh, it's just fantastic. And, you know, obviously they're really endearing and charismatic birds. And then I learned more about the role that they play in our ecosystem as well and how they are such an important indicator for the state of our oceans, really. You know, if you look at an albatross and it's skinny and full of plastic, then obviously there's something going on wrong with the ocean. There's something not right. If the albatross is full of plastic, it means that there is plastic on the ocean, on the surface of the water where they're fishing. And if there's no fish in their belly, if there's no squid beaks in the boluses, which is the indigestible hard material that comes from when they eat, they sort of collect a bolus, which is often what the plastic is is made up of. If there's no squid beaks or anything or any other kind of, you know, looks like stuff that they would be eating in there, then it's probably a sign that they've got really low food numbers as well. Uh, especially when you see down in the Southern Ocean, there is such a huge issue with albatross being caught on long line fishings and in commercial fishing gear and that kind of thing. So these are the these are the things that you you start to realize that they're telling us. They're like, look, this is what's going on. Well, obviously not. They're not telling us specifically. You they they are absolutely sending a message to us to say this is the state of what our habitat and what our ocean is at the moment, and it's not great. It's really not great and they're not doing well and they're not able to thrive and survive like they should be because of it. And, you know, people ask me, why do you like birds? Why are birds important? I would rather have all of these other things than have birds, which I think is a bold question to ask me. <laughs> but I will always take any question with as an opportunity to very kindly educate and help bring people to the to the dark side of conservation and bird loving. And yeah, it's just simply that we wouldn't be able to exist without birds we in in every single kind of bird that is around you know it is birds play such a vital role in our circular ecosystems if you take seabirds out of the mix even for a place here like Waiheke or anywhere in the Hodaki Gulf where we have seabirds nesting on the ground you are taking away so much nutrients from the soil and so much nutrients that goes from the soil and from the cliffs where they nest down into the into our coastlines feeding all of the little fish and kelp and seaweed along our 
rocky shore and obviously all the plants in the soil up above as well which the trees and plants need to grow strong and grow big and hold all of the soil together and we've seen with all of the flooding and everything that we're having all of these crazy wild weather events due to climate change very much due to climate change that we're having so many issues with land moving and with losing so much uh, structure in the soil so it's more important than ever at the moment that we're protecting our manu and our and our tree birds like our kiriru and our kaka which are such important birds when it comes to forest restoration because they're some of the few birds that can still consume and move the berries of uh, plants like tarairi and karaka, the really big fruits and seeds around the forest so that they can continue to grow and spread other places. You know, you take these animals out of the mix and suddenly we've got no trees and we've got no soil. I love birds because they make me so happy, but they also just so important to how we function and, you know, as people in a, living in this environment, we need birds to survive. You're totally right. And it's it's so crucial that we look at our earth systems in that light, how everything has their part to play. And we often talk about people all having their part to play, but it's the same as every different species within that system. If we take something away, then we're causing a massive imbalance in those food chains, but also in those ecosystem uh, services that they provide, like the seabirds with the nutrients that they're putting into the soil. If we don't have that, our plants can't grow as strong as they are with that. If we don't have the birds that can uh, pollinate or even disperse the seeds, then we're going to lose a lot of those trees, those massive trees in particular with the kiriru that you talked about. So it's really important that we're not thinking about each part as a singular thing. Everything is connected. And that's why we're here. That's why we care so much about this work, because we're able to see that bigger picture. We're able to work in these niche fields, knowing that this niche field has an important part to play within the whole system and that every species should be looked after in that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you have done a lot of work in that restoration field, and you've also done a lot of work in that marine cleanup field. Now, I wondered whether you'd like to talk about sea cleaners and the impact that that had and maybe some interesting things that you found along the way. Yeah, I had so much fun working for sea cleaners. I worked full time for them for about a year and a half uh, with Curie Smack Bang in the middle of that. I was really lucky to be selected as a youth ambassador uh, for sea cleaners and go up to Hawaii in 2018, uh, which was where I first learned about Lace and Albatross and fell head over heels in love with them. And we all know what happened after that. And when I came back, I was able to join as a deckhand and go explore every inch of our Hauraki Gulf. I think I I basically feel like I've covered every little inch of coastline that there is to offer, including all of the islands, uh, all the way out to Altair, uh, all over Coromandel, uh, up every muddy inch of mangroved uh, estuary, up the Tamaki and the Foe and the Henderson Creek. Uh, and as you can imagine, there's some weird stuff floating out around there. 
Uh, I definitely had the opportunity to collect some of the weirdest, strangest things I've ever found. Uh, when I say I found everything, I mean think of literally anything ever made by a person, and I've probably found it up a creek somewhere. Lots of things I definitely did not want to find. Mm. Uh, but one one thing I a couple of things that stand out are probably I found a plastic bottle full to the brim of of dead flies to the point where you think now the flies aren't putting themselves in this bottle something else is something else has put all these flies in this bottle oh, that was really gross and weird and as part of my role as a deckhand you're talking you um, I'm in charge of taking care of the volunteers that we had out with us and making sure nobody's putting any weird stuff in your bags and as you go you sort of have to increase the amount of okay if you find this don't put it in the bag if you find this don't put it in the bag and you know bag a bottle full of dead flies is <laughs> <laughs> and bottles bottles full of all sorts of other gross things that I had to keep yeah. adding to the list um yeah I found a human umbilical cord once which wow. was absolutely wild um and that actually has a really happy ending we I got to return it to the not to the owner but to the person who it belonged to uh it was in a little, <laughs> it's crazy right so I was at the very top of the Tamaki history and I find this little tin and I think, oh, this is cute. I'll have a look inside. And there was a baby band and a clamp with an umbilical cord on it. And I was like, what on earth am I looking at right now? And through that information, we were able to get in touch with the people. And it turns out their house had been robbed. And all of the unnecessary contents that the people didn't want were just thrown in the river. And they were so heartbroken to have lost this because it's mm -hmm. obviously really important to them. And we and I got to return it to them, wow. which was crazy. I didn't expect it to to turn out like that. But that was that went from being very strange to a very happy ending story. Uh, but yeah, all sorts of 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 weird stuff. And of course, so much, just so much plastic. There is so much plastic in, in the Gulf. You know, when I talk about the plastic on Cure, it's all stuff that's coming from the wider Pacific that everything is feeding into Cure and these other these other islands in the Hawaiian archipelago, because obviously the people on the islands aren't throwing out tons of commercial fishing gear. The tons of commercial fishing gear are coming from other places. Uh, but a lot of the rubbish that we were picking up at Sea Cleaners is, is stuff that's come from within within Tamaki, within the Auckland and the Gulf. And it's stuff that has come out of people's bins when it gets rainy or the dogs rip open a bag of rubbish or you toss something out your car window and you don't think about it. These are all things that we're finding in the Gulf. And you can see stuff that has like parking tickets that have street numbers and and the dates and, you know, plastic. We were finding plastic Coke bottles that they stopped making in the 80s on the beaches and I was finding one every day if, if not every, every every day maybe every week uh, but these are the kinds of things that stick around for a really 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 long time uh, we found all sorts of stuff from way 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 back I found stuff from over 100 years ago I think that wasn't it wasn't plastic it was metal but these things that we you know that you throw out and you don't think about again even if it's just a bottle cap you know, these these things have a plastic is a very, very long life. It has a never ending life, basically. When people say that, oh, it breaks down eventually, plastic doesn't break down, it breaks up. It breaks up into smaller pieces and it joins our food chain eventually. And even as a bottle cap, it's joining the food chain. When I was on Cure, one of the most heartbreaking things I had to watch was a albatross, was a lace and albatross chick coughing up a Coca-Cola bottle lid 
onto the ground mm-hmm. and it's when you get to a point like that and you just think I I I look at a picture of a of a dead albatross open and if there's anything in the bird that you I, I I show this when I do talks if there's anything that you see in this bird that you use in your daily life this may be a good opportunity to rethink whether or not you still need it or if there's a better alternative like toothbrushes and that kind of thing and lighters um there's just so much plastic out there and I think it's really important like sea cleaners do a fantastic job of keeping on top of the stuff uh in Auckland and I think w- a, a wider Auckland as well now which is really exciting uh but yeah it starts with what you can do in your home and if you know if you're being responsible with your rubbish that's great cool but even before being responsible with your rubbish maybe don't even have it in the first place. If you don't need, if you don't need the glad wrap on your sandwich or you don't need another plastic pump bottle, that kind of thing, then just don't get it. <laughs> get a drink bottle. <laughs> think about what you're, yeah, think about what you're using and don't be afraid to have a chat to your friends in Fano and say, hey, you know, I've been using these beeswax wraps or I read this really cool book about, you know, little things that we can change in our lives that have a fantastic positive impact that aren't massive at all and it's that really cool ripple effect because once it's because it's really cool to be doing good things and I found it was a punishment when I was in school to go and pick up rubbish at lunchtime and I'm really glad that there's been a huge turnaround in how picking up rubbish and being environmentally friendly is a lot cooler nowadays which I think is fantastic there's a lot that we can do in our lives to make a difference and it also doesn't mean that you have to be doing it perfectly. I think this is really important too, is that you you don't have to, if you can't do those things, then that's also fine. You know, it's not worth beating yourself up about that. I can't, I can't be vegan. I can't be entirely plastic free. Um, I can't buy only secondhand clothes or, you know, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do that. Don't worry about it. That is so, that is so fine. You are, you are doing so well. It doesn't matter. You do not have to be perfect. If you can do one little thing, then that is absolutely fantastic. Because I think the more that we beat ourselves up over it, you just get more and more upset and depressed about it, like genuinely depressed about it. I, I had a horrible time for a while because I just didn't think I was doing enough. And then I stopped and I took a step back and I thought, no, I'm doing everything that I can. And I'm talking about it and I'm raising awareness. And I think that's just as good. You know, not everyone can be perfect. And I think if everyone was perfect, we'd all be insane. It's just not possible. And we're all going to be a lot happier and a lot better friends (laughs) if we're just doing our best. And I think with everything that's going on at the moment, with the cost of living, with just how literally everything is going on, especially with COVID and that kind of thing, like sometimes you've just got to use a bit of plastic and sometimes you just can't afford to have the nice expensive reusable stuff. And that's so okay as well. Uh, We're just all out here doing our best at the moment, I think. (laughs) 100 percent and that's something that a lot of young people in my sessions bring up right we talk about overfishing we talk about pollution and pollution in particular a lot of the students say well I'm making these changes but I know that people down the road from me are not and they're disrespecting the planet and like how do I feel good about what I'm doing when I know that they're doing the wrong thing And all I can say to that is, and I'm going to quote a student because different students say different things, right? And the student just said, in knowing that I'm doing the right thing, I know that no matter what happens, it's balancing out and we're better for it rather than me not doing anything at all. 
and it's 100% true. We can only do as much as we can do. It shouldn't be perfect because burnout is real. It is as simple as us all doing our best and making those decisions that are sustainable for our well-being and for the planet at the same time. And if it's not sustainable for one of those two things, then figuring out what works best and coming to a compromise for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I definitely want to want to touch on the burnout because I feel like and I feel like you would understand as somebody who works in conservation, it's my my full-time job is in conservation work and my entire life revolves around conservation work. So I find it really hard to stop working and to, you know, turn my brain off and, you know, step away from it because it's something that I'm passionate about. It absolutely engulfs your my entire existence, which I'm so grateful for because I love that my job is something that I'm really passionate about and that I'm able to put my all into it. But it is so, so easy to get burnt out. And I, this is just a message for other people in conservation is to take care of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you have to watch two hours of Gordon Ramsay yelling at people in kitchens to, <laughs> to help, you know, chill out and relax, just make sure that you're taking time for yourself because you, you can't be your best self and your best person for the planet and your job and whatever you're trying really hard to help restore and conserve. You can't do that if you're burnt out and, you know, curled up on the on the couch unable to do anything so make sure you're taking care of yourself as well because nobody nobody's winning if if yeah if you're not in a good space the key to that is balance right there should never be an expectation that you are to do this constantly that you are to think about this constantly there is enough burden in the stuff that we do and enough negative thoughts as you say like within the news and within everything that we need to be able to have that space and give ourselves the grace to have that as well and to also not be perfect in the way that we're allowing ourselves to make mistakes and to learn from them and also supporting other people in their journey as well because if we're shutting them down with the choices that they're making then we're not hearing them and we're not coming to the party as to where they're at and what that looks like for them which again is is not sustainable for anyone involved. Now, I do really want you to talk about your current work as well. What are you doing at the moment? Currently, I am the monitoring technician for Te Korowai o Waiheke, which I moved here to Waiheke Island at the end of uh, 2021, September 2021, for this job and it has been fantastic for the last two and a bit years uh really grateful to have been in this position uh, surrounded by such a lovely community such a lovely workspace and crew working towards uh Waiheke's predator-free vision which is super cool so uh our trust is uh, dedicated to eradicating stoats and rats from the island and the stoat eradication is going really really well so I am part of the rat eradication, which we're in the trial phase for, trying to figure out the best way to do that. So yeah, it's been fantastic and it's a really, really cool job. And yeah, the Waiheke community is just fantastic. And this is such a cool place to be working and doing something a little bit different to what I'm used to doing. I'd obviously, as as, as I talked about before, been mostly in the marine space before here. So it's cool to be able to do a job that's on the land and working towards a different kind of you know, rats and stoats rather than plastic, uh, but all helping the birds, which is what I always say, you know, if I can't be working exactly with a bird in my hand, I want to be working towards making their lives a little bit easier. So this job has been really cool for that. I love that. Mm -hmm. 
we've got an exciting trip coming up. What is this oh, trip yes. and, and tell us more about it. I am so, so grateful to be able to say that I am one of this year's uh, inspiring explorers for the Antarctic Heritage Trust, Woohoo! which means I get to go to South Georgia Island, which has been on the top of my list of amazing places I want to visit and work and get left behind. <laughs> and when I was on Cure, I wrote a big list of all the other islands I wanted to go to and South Georgia was at the top of that list. So I'm so, so lucky and and grateful to be able to be going there so soon after Cure. Uh, me and a group of 21 other inspiring explorers who are all uh, amazing. They are some of the coolest, most inspiring, incredibly talented, creative, wonderful, smart people I've ever met in my life. And I'm so stoked that we all get to go on this amazing journey together. So at the end of September, we are all jumping on a flight to Santiago and then from Santiago to Punta Arenas in Patagonia, and then from there to the Falkland Islands, where we will then get on a ship and head to South Georgia Island. And when I tell people, I'm going to South Georgia, they're like, where is that? <laughs> and they assume I'm going to somewhere in America or somewhere else. So I now start with saying, I'm going to Antarctica, to South Georgia Island, because South Georgia is part of uh, the Antarctic continent. So it'll be pretty special to be able to say, I'm going to Antarctica. And South Georgia is just the most, if you haven't heard of it, I highly recommend putting it into Google Maps right now and figuring out where it is. And also adding King Penguin to the end of your search, because they have a colony of, I believe it's a million king penguins on South Georgia Island. And I think it's the highest density of biomass in the world or something like that like you look at the pictures and they look fake uh <laughs> there is an incredible amount of wildlife on south georgia from all of the different penguin species to all of the different albatross species to petrels to seals to whales oh just everything it also has incredible history of course with uh sir ernest shackleton's endurance expedition after him and his crew got stranded in Antarctica and their their ship, the Endurance, sank. Six of them managed to find their way to South Georgia and, of course, cross over into the whaling station, which included crossing over what is now known as Mount Worsley. Some of our team will be climbing in on our trip, which is incredible. I am so not the person to be doing that, so I'm so <laughs> glad that they are. <laughs> and I'm so excited to see how it goes and see all of their amazing pictures and hear about it. But that will be really exciting as well to learn about the history of the island to see the, the whaling station and yeah just see all of the wildlife and be able to explore all of the different islands around the edges of it and go into all the different bays and walks and be back in the subantarctics it's such a special part of our planet that that sort of band of remote cold rocky bird smelly islands that we have around the southern parts of the whole world you know we have our own amazing some antarctic islands here which i'm really lucky to have visited and so south georgia is just the most amazing next destination and we will be there for two whole weeks uh whether whether going well um exploring all of the different areas of the island and then when we come back what i'm equally excited to be doing is working on outreach projects alongside everybody so we have been split into into groups uh doing educational scientific uh video and visual art 
outreach projects when we get back and I'm really stoked that I'm in the visual arts team so we're going to be doing a few art exhibitions all over the place and also me and one other are going to be writing and illustrating a kid's book about South Georgia and the wildlife so I am so excited for that because I've wanted to illustrate a kid's book for forever and this is finally the perfect opportunity to do that while being supported by the trust and having this amazing experience that we can write and paint and just do all this brainstorming while we're there I'm just so excited for all of the painting and and writing potential and being able to share another one of these just incredible remote islands that nobody's ever heard of with the rest of the world again (laughs) That is absolutely incredible. I gasped when you said you're going to be illustrating a children's book. That is so exciting. And I cannot wait to hear all of your adventure stories when you come back, because I'm sure there will be many. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. If you could visit anywhere in the world to study the wildlife, where would you go? This is hard. I was I've been thinking about this and I I just I honestly feel like saying South Georgia because that's what I would have said previous to to, <laughs> to getting this trip. Um it would yeah, it would have to be South Georgia or Gough Island. Um I mean I'd I'd go back to the northwestern Hawaiians in uh, Hawaiian Islands in a in a heartbeat as well to spend more time studying the wildlife but you honestly you could just go to anywhere on the map and if there's blank ocean and then if you zoom in a bit and there's an island there there that's that's where I want to go wherever it's most far away and as the 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 weirdest stinkiest seabirds put me there that's where I want to be <laughs> if there's albatross and petrels and terns and bird poop everywhere that I'm sorted I'm happy anywhere like that is good to me I love that so niche on your profile photo what is the bird that is on your head that is a sooty turn now I talk a lot about albatross which I love very much but I would actually say my favorite bird from Curie Atoll is the sooty turn now these birds are the most annoying thing ever created and put on this planet (laughs) but I love them so much uh and when you would be working around the place uh whether it was walking back and forwards or whatever you were doing often you would just feel a little a little pitter patter on the top of your head and they would just land on you it was it was you know every every wildlife photographer's dream is to have that picture of them photographing a bird or whatever it is with the same species either sitting on you or sitting next to you I love those pictures so much and this was just the ultimate like Nat Geo moment for me was having the sooty turn sitting on my head while photographing other sooty turns and anybody else who's worked on tropical islands will be able to uh, agree with how noisy and annoying these birds are but that's what made me love them so much you know it was nice to have them sitting on sitting on your head and when I was working because obviously you want to keep working because our time is really limited you'd feel it sitting there but I'm looking down the whole time and I'm searching for weeds so I would I would almost I'd move my head so that the bird could use it like a treadmill because I could move it just slow enough that it would I could feel it readjusting its feet as I lifted my head and then readjusting them again when I looked back down it was 
absolutely hilarious. And that picture on the cover is actually from my very last day on Cure as we were packing up to leave. It was the very last sooty turn I saw. And I walked up to her and I was like, what are you doing? And I took one step and it took another step towards me and it took another step. And then it eventually it just sat on my head. I was like, this is, this is the island saying goodbye. And it was a very special moment for me. So I love that picture and I love those birds. Oh, that is so cool. There's been many moments during this conversation that I've wished that our listeners can see what's happening because we're in a Zoom call right now and there's been so many movements like us bobbing as we were pretending to be the albatross. <laughs> you'll just you'll just have to search it up. You'll just have to look at the real thing. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much, Charlie. This has been so much fun. I've loved learning from you and hearing all of your amazing stories on many different remote islands, um, as well as locally as well. So thank you so much for having a cordial with me. And I'm sure our listeners are going to be searching up all of the things that you've told us about today. I hope so. I hope so. Thank you so much. I've had the best time. It's been amazing to be able to go back and relive all of these memories. And as I'm sure you can see from the enormous smile on my face, I've had the best time. So thank you so much for inviting me. Now, if you wish to join our amazing community of listeners, head over to our social media platforms. This is a place where we're able to share sound bites from each episode with our wonderful guests and also share in our own nature connection stories so if you want to the best way to access this is link in our bio or you can head to linktree so that's linktr.ee slash the seed pod underscore nz thanks so much